All right, we're in chapter 10 of Revelation. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7 to get started. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. Uh, John says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it. And he said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. We're going to stop and break this section down. And we're going to deal with this mighty angel that comes and steps one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. And there are those who have for years taught that this is Jesus. But I'm going to show you from context here that this is not Jesus. This is actually an angel. Okay? And one of the first clues that we can have to this is from the word another. You see, then I saw another mighty angel. That word another in the Greek is the word alos. Alright? Or alos. And it means another of the same kind. Now, when you realize now that it's saying another of the same kind, it can't be referring to Jesus. So, is there a previous place where we've seen another of the same kind of mighty angel described? And actually the answer to that is yes. Go back to Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 5, in verse 2, John says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break open the seals and open the scroll? Alright, so here we see an eight mighty angel. Now when we get here to chapter 10, we see John say, And I saw another, and in the Greek it means another of the same kind, another mighty angel coming down from heaven. Uh, another place you'll see a mighty angel referenced real quickly is in Revelation chapter 18. Go to Revelation 18 and take a look at verse 21. There it says in verse 21, Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said... And we'll get to that when we get to that section. So here we see at least three references to mighty angels. You're going to see there are other kind of angels. They're the angels that come and, and open some seals. The first four uh, seals were opened, you know, by Jesus. we got Jesus opening those seals. And then you get other t times, like in chapter 8, when He opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven. And, and then it goes on to say in verse 3, another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar and these types of things. So I want you to understand there's different types of angels that are all being described here by John. And in this passage, when He says, and then I saw another of the same same kind of mighty angel coming down. He's referring to another mighty angel like the one in chapter 5, verse 2. But there's also a further and even better evidence to the fact that this is not Jesus. And it's by the fact that He stands and He raises His hands to heaven and He swears by who? God. He swears by God. He swears by one greater than Himself. Scripturally, and I'm going to show you that in Scripture, God does not swear by one greater than Himself. The Bible says that God swears by Himself, because there is none greater. This angel is swearing by one greater than Himself. But go to Exodus 32. Put a bookmark here and go to Exodus 32, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Exodus 
going to start in verse 13. This is after the Israelites have made the golden calf and they were worshiping it and all this. God was wanting to wipe them out and said, He told Moses, I'll start over with you. And uh, Moses, knowing the glory of God and how God feels about His glory, said to this, said to God, He said, Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I'll give your descendants all this land, I promise them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on His people the disaster He had threatened. Moses said, Don't you remember you swore by yourself and made a promise? Uh, If you wipe them all out and start over with me, it won't be a fulfillment of that promise. God, you've got to keep your promise. And God says, you know me real well. I care about my glory. I'm not going to do this. Now, he didn't change his mind, as some people try to say, because that's not who God is. He doesn't change his mind. But how many of you who have had kids um, gave them a very serious threat, knowing that if they turned around, you wouldn't fulfill it. But you still gave the threat. I'm going to. And then they repented. And you relented. Now, did you change your mind? No. Your threat accomplished its purpose. And that's the same thing with Jonah. God tells Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh and do what? Proclaim 40 days and you'll be destroyed. He doesn't go in and say, if you repent, you won't be. He just said, 40 days and you'll be destroyed. Of course... Nineveh and everybody falls on their faces, repents in sackcloth and dust and ashes, and uh, God then says, I'm not going to bring the judgment on them. But again, it's not God changing His mind. But what I want you to see from this passage in Exodus is, the Scripture says that God swore by Himself. Go to Hebrews chapter 6. There it's even talked about in more detail. In Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 13. Here the Hebrew writer is referring to this passage that we just talked about. It says when God, verse 13 of chapter 6, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Again, God does not swear by someone greater than himself. He swears by himself. In back here in Revelation chapter 10, this mighty angel, who is of, the, of another of the same kind as we saw in chapter 5 verse 2, is a mighty angel and it's not Jesus. I bring that out simply just to say that there are a lot of people out there and a lot of commentaries will say that this is Jesus. And where, where do they get the idea that it might be Jesus? Any idea from the context? Uh, the whole look, right? And he has a little scroll and what else? The rainbow, because remember we see the rainbow encircles the throne of God. How does he roar? He roared like a lion. And so there are those who thought this was Jesus. But if you look in context, you'll see that it's not. And there's one other context, which is going to come out in our next verse. Look at verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me at once, spoke to me once more, and said, Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. Now, who was the voice that he had heard from heaven? It was Jesus. Go with me back to Revelation chapter 4. Alright, we know that in Revelation 1, John was on the Isle of Patmos. He was worshiping the Lord. He was in the Spirit. And then he heard this voice behind him. He turned and he saw Jesus. And that full description of Jesus. But in chapter 4, 
after he's been given the message to the church, messages to the churches, and in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. And then he's taken up into heaven. So now here in chapter 10, verse 8, the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more and told him to go over to the angel and take the scroll out of his hand. So here Jesus is telling him to go over to the angel. This mighty angel is just a mighty angel. Now we could try to guess on which one it is. We don't know. We don't know. It's just a mighty angel. Go ahead, Fred. You may not want to answer the question now until we get to chapter 11. Mm-hmm. Hang on and we'll get there. Hang on and we'll get there. Alright? So right now we've got this mighty angel coming down and he swears by one greater than himself and he says, there, what does he say? There'll be what? Does anybody see it in verse 6? No more delay. What, what we're seeing here, and this is what's going to be a little bit tricky for us is, as you're going to see a little bit of this tonight, is they're about to blow the seventh trumpet. Now remember, the seven trumpets come out of the opening of the seventh seal. You open the seventh seal, and then there were seven trumpets that were to be blown. And the seventh trumpet hasn't been blown yet in our, in our chronology. It's about to be blown. But chapter 10 talks about the fact that the seventh trumpet's about to be blown, but... When we get to chapter 11, the seventh trumpet won't be blown till the end of chapter 11. There's other stuff that he's going to see. So, again, keep your mind over the fact that we're looking at prophetic writing here. We're not looking at something that reads like a story because he just said that it's going to be no more delay. And when, and look what it says in verse 7, but in the days when the seventh trumpet's about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. God's going to finish up all the stuff that he said he was going to do through the prophets. All right? Now, let's move over to chapter 10, verses 8 through 11. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more, Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, Take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Now again, this is one of the perfect examples of, if you haven't really read the Old Testament and don't really know the whole of Scripture, you read this and you're going to say, well, what does that mean? That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But interestingly enough, if you were to have known the Old Testament, as the the readers of this book would have been, the Jewish people especially, you'll find out, you'd say, wait a minute, this isn't the first time someone's been told to eat a scroll. Put a bookmark here and go with me back to Ezekiel. I'm sorry, not Ezekiel. Yeah, Ezekiel chapter 3. Ezekiel chapter 3. I wrote Exodus in my notes for some reason. I'm saying that's not right. Ezekiel chapter 3.
Now, as you're, as, you're, as you're there in Ezekiel chapter 3, chapter 2, as you see in your heading, talks about Ezekiel's call, how he's called by God to go speak to the nation of Israel. He's told they're not going to listen to you at all. They're going to be stubborn, but I'm going to make you as stubborn as them. I'm going to make you as hard-headed as them, and you're going to keep preaching it even though they won't listen. And at the end of uh, chapter 2, uh, he says in verse 9, Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me, and it was a scroll in which he unrolled before me. And on both sides it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, chapter 3, verse 1, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll, then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. Doesn't that sound a little familiar to what we just read in Revelation? Now, again, let's kind of back up now. Ezekiel has been told by God, I'm sending you out to proclaim a message to the nation of Israel. It's a message of woe. It's a message of of the fact that judgment is coming and they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to turn around. They're not going to repent. And they're going to be so hard against you, I'm going to make you as hard if not harder than them so that you'll be able to keep preaching this message. But here, I want you to take this scroll. I want you to put it in your mouth. And when you put it in your mouth, it's going to taste sweet as honey. And he does. Why is God wanting him to eat the words that he's about to go speak? So we can digest it. Keep going. So then he can prophesy. Folks, what I, want, I want to take a little section time right now to kind of break away and deal with something that I think will be helpful for you. A lot of Christians don't really understand that Bible reading needs to be looked at as eating. You see, over the years, we've, every Sunday school lesson ended with what? You need to read your Bible and you need to pray, right? You remember every Sunday school lesson, pretty much that? Every, I, I tell a lot of uh, churches that I travel to, uh, when the minister of music will come, and they'll say, well, what kind of an invitation hymn do you want me to use? And I'll say, trust and obey. It works for whatever. I, I don't know what I'm preaching yet, but whatever's going to come out, trust and obey is going to fit, all right? But at the same time, what has happened to us is, we have turned Bible reading into a law. And we felt guilty. How many of you, honestly, show of hands, have felt guilty if you didn't read your Bible that day or the day before? You know what I'm talking about? We feel guilty because I didn't do what I was supposed to do. And God is not a God who has us under the law. We're under grace. Yet there's value. You need to read the Word. But the problem is, is what's happened is, is uh, man has tried to accomplish in, in man what only the Spirit of God can really accomplish. And so when it's the Spirit who's supposed to put that hunger and that desire for His Word in us, we as preachers over the years have unfortunately started to try to guilt people. We would read in, in, uh, in Psalm chapter 1 where David says, uh, I hunger and I meditate on your word in the morning, in the noon, in the night. And we would say, hey, David read his Bible every day, three times a day. You need to be reading your Bible too. And we'd make it a law. Well, in the book of Corinthians, the Bible says that the law fuels sin. Paul said, I didn't even know what sin was till the law said, don't, don't covet. Now every covetous desire came up within me and I died. When we're told, I dare you to do this, or you can't do this, what, what, what happens in us? We either want to do it or we don't want to do it. You know what I'm saying? If they say you can't, now we want to. If they say you can, you know, we, 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 just, we want to be in control. Well, when we turn, you've got to read your Bible every day into a law. All of a sudden, we don't want to do it now. But if you look... Now, nobody has to tell you to eat, I'm, ho- I'm pretty sure, right? Unless you're sick. Unless there's something wrong with you, 
Nobody has to tell you, you need to eat. You know when you're hungry and you want to eat. It's a natural part. And oh, by the way, don't we eat morning, noon, and night? All the time. Here, throughout the Scripture, you'll see that ingesting the Word is like eating. This is the Word of life. This is called the bread of life. Jesus is the Word, and, and the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And Lord, Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 7, uh, John chapter 17, verse 17, Sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. Don't look at Bible reading as, I got to read my Bible today. I know of a preacher at a radio program, and he used to ask this question every single day. Did you read your Bible today? Have you prayed today? His intentions were good. But what he did was he made it an obligation and a duty and not a joy. If you're eating only because you got to eat and it's an obligation and a duty, not a joy, you've missed out on the fun of food. In the same way, reading the Bible should become for you that. Don't read it because you got to. Read it because you need to eat. Man does not live by bread alone, but... Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You don't want to know the honest, real reason. We can come up with lots of reasons why the church today is sick. The real reason is, the deep, deep issue is, most Christians don't read the Bible for themselves. That's it! I mean, we can get into policies and how our church governs themselves and all these kinds of issues. The real issue is simply this. Most Christians do not read the Bible for themselves. Ezekiel was told, Eat it. Eat it. Ingest it. And then when he preached it, it was coming from here, not here. Go ahead. And I'll, I'll get to why it turned their stomach sour. But, but, but yes, it tasted sweet as honey to them, but it turned their stomach sour. And we'll get to that in just a second. But what I want you to understand is, in the same way now, back here in Revelation chapter 10, John has been given this little scroll, and he's told to eat it. It's going to taste sweet as honey in your mouth, and it's going to turn your stomach sour. But then what's he told? Verse 11. You're going to prophesy some more. About many peoples, language, nations, and kings. Go real quickly to Jeremiah chapter 50. Jeremiah chapter 15. Somebody with a good loud voice that might be picked up on this recording want to read just verse 16 for us. Jeremiah 15 verse 16. Thy words were found, and I did eat them. Thy word was upon me, the joy and rejoicing in my heart. For I am called by thy name, O Lord, God of hosts. You hear that? Your words came, and I did what? I ate them. And it gave my heart delight, joy. Why? Because I'm called by your name. Again, we see this picture of eating. Now let's deal with her question of why does it taste sweet as honey and turn your stomach sour? How many of you know that you're saved? How does that make you feel? Doesn't that make you feel good? I mean, the message of this book should give you joy. What's going to happen to those who don't know Jesus? 
How's it going to make you feel? You understand? It tastes sweet to us. But if you really understand it, it's going to put a burden on you as well. Back when I was pastor in Chicago, there was a man whose wife was a Buddhist. And we prayed for Lynn, her name was Lynn, to be saved. And we've been praying for her to be saved for, for months, if not years. And one Sunday, during the invitation, I can still vividly picture this, she pushes her husband out of the way, and she goes down the aisle, and she comes forward to accept Christ as her Savior. I, I, I was praising God yet at the same time, wanting to make sure she understood. And I said, Lynn, what are you coming forward for? She said, I need to be saved. I said, Lynn, do you realize that when you say yes to Jesus today, you're saying that Buddhism is not the way? She said, I know. And I said, you do understand that you're not going to pray to ancestors anymore. She said, I know. I said, so you're ready? She said, yes. I prayed with her. She gave her life to Jesus Christ. There wasn't a dry eye in that sanctuary, but Lynn Brown stood there like this. And I was having mixed emotions because here I am celebrating with the rest of us saying, Hallelujah, she's turned from Buddhism to Jesus Christ. He's no longer one of the many gods. He's the only God. Yet she stood there and she had the most depressed look on her face. I turned to her and I said, Lynn, what's the matter? She said, I know now that my family is going to hell. It hit her. This is truth. Yeah, it tastes good to me, but it takes, turns my stomach a little sick. John knows that what he's about to write about and what he's about to prophesy about, it's good news for us, folks. It is. But at the same time, do we really believe that God cares for these people just like we say He does? You know, it's easy for us to start saying, well, hallelujah, we're all in. But unless you're burdened for the fact that there's people around us that aren't going to heaven, do you really have the same heart that God does? Part of it is you need to spend some more time in this book. Eat it. Digest it. People don't understand. You know, they say, Jim, you don't really prepare the way most people prepare. What I do is I just live in this book. So that way, whenever I go to preach, I am ready. I've eaten. I've feasted on this book. Whatever He wants me to proclaim, I'll proclaim. But I've eaten for more than just one time. You know, a lot of preachers, unfortunately, today are only eating for just one meal. You know, they're cramming for that one sermon. And if anybody asks them a question outside that, that topic, they're like, I only studied for this. We need to be the same way. We need to be feeding on the book. And when you do, you're then able to proclaim it. Oh, doesn't that what the Bible said we're supposed to be doing too? Don't think it's just the preachers. We're all to be His witnesses. Remember what did He say in Acts chapter 1 verse 8? The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my what? Witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Folks, don't sit back and say, well, Jim, you go feed and you come back and tell us what it says. Uh-uh. My job is to equip you. My job is to teach you. But it's also at the same time to teach you how to feed for yourself because there are going to be people you'll run into I'll never see. There will be people you'll run into that will never come to church to hear the preacher. You need to feed on this book. But please don't turn it into a law. Don't feel, I didn't read my Bible yesterday. God's man, uh-uh. If you never read your Bible again, God will still look at you the same way. Because it has nothing to do with what you do. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done. You're going to miss out on a lot of stuff that He's got for you, but it will not change how God views you.
So don't let the enemy make you feel guilty because you didn't read your Bible. Just go eat. Go eat. Go nibble. Some of you you might eat more than others. That's okay. At least eat. Alright? So what is he told? He's told to take this scroll, eat it. Now, every time I've taught Revelation, someone will ask me, this before we move on to chapter 11, someone will ask me, what did the seven thunders say that John wasn't allowed to write down? Hello. <laughs> we don't know. He wasn't allowed to write it down and none of us were there. Alright? So the answer to that one is we don't know and don't even try to guess. Because if it was something we were supposed to know, John would have been allowed to write it down. He wasn't even allowed to write it down. All right. We know that Paul said that he got to see the third heaven. He actually got to experience paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, he didn't know. But he wasn't allowed to say what he saw. He said, I saw things that man's not allowed to talk about. So, what did the seven thunders say? No idea. No idea. All right. Let's go on to chapter 11. Verses 1 through 14. It says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how the one who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they're prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies, while their enemies looked on. At that very hour there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. Now, real quickly, Fred, to answer your question, I I believe this one who gave his authority to witnesses is still Jesus because he's the one that told John to go take the scroll from that angel and Jesus was the one talking to him and it appears that Jesus is still talking to him at this time. I don't believe it's the angel telling him that I'll give my authority, my power to the two witnesses. I think Jesus is still talking there. We're going to get to who are the witnesses in just a little bit. We're going to get to that. All right, But here we see that John's told, first of all, to go and measure what? Is there a temple in Jerusalem right now? No, there isn't. But remember when we did our Daniel study, the Antichrist is going to step into the temple at the midway point of the tribulation. So at some point, whether before this last seven-year period for the nation of Israel begins, or if it begins in the first half of the tribulation period, there's going to be a rebuilding of the temple. Now, interestingly enough as well, if don't turn there now, but if you want to do a, an interesting read, you'll go to Ezekiel chapter 40, and you'll see that Ezekiel was taken in the Spirit to go see this temple and to measure it. 
And if you compare the measurements in the description of this temple that he sees in Ezekiel chapter 40, it doesn't match any of the other temples that previously existed. So the, the temple that, that Ezekiel sees in chapter 40 is most likely the one that's going to be there during the tribulation period and the millennium. Alright? Now... He's also told, though, not to measure the outer court because it has been given to the Gentiles and they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Now, most people believe, and I myself as well, think this will be the second half of the tribulation period. That 42 months is the second three and a half years where they're going to be able to trample the city. And interestingly enough, though, Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 21 that Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until what? The times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Filled. Now, a lot of people have said that the time of the Gentiles ends at the end of the church age when the church is raptured. The only problem with that is there are Gentiles still being saved during the tribulation period. And here we see that they'll trample on it until when? 42 months, right? And so the, the Gentiles are still having some time, if you will. The nation of Israel doesn't come back to full belief in Jesus Christ until the end of the tribulation period. So there's a chance the time of the Gentiles does not come to a close at the end of the church age, but actually continues after the rapture. time of the Gentiles might continue until the nation of Israel turns to faith in Jesus Christ. Don't know, but it's an interesting thing to look at. Um, we've a long, long time thought that the time of the Gentiles came to an end at the end of the church age. But there's a possibility it might extend a little bit longer. All right? But now he said, I'll give power to, 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 to my two witnesses, and they'll prophesy for three and a half years. That's 1,260 days. Again, clothed in that, sack, sackcloth. Now, the big question is, who are these two witnesses? Now, for years, some people have said that it is Enoch and Elijah. The reason why they've said it was Enoch and Elijah was because in Hebrews chapter 11, verse... Sorry... Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says it's appointed for man once to die and then face the judgment. There are two people in the Bible that never died. Enoch was taken to be with God and Elijah was taken to be with God. And so for many years, people have taught that these two witnesses are Enoch and Elijah because they have to come back and die since they haven't died yet because it says it's appointed for man once to die. Well, there's a problem with that. Has the rapture already occurred at this point? Okay, there's millions who haven't died. So, that can't be it. There's another little issue with that as well. Enoch wasn't even a Jew. Now, he was a godly man, he's listed in the Scriptures, but Enoch actually wasn't a Jew. The real answer to who are the two witnesses is this. We don't know. Now, I'm going to show you scripturally who I think it might be, and I think I can show you scripturally why, but the honest answer is, we don't know who the two witnesses are. Okay? But I can tell you this much, if your reason for Enoch and Elijah is because they have to come back and die because they didn't die yet, that's bad theology. They don't have to come back and die. Okay? But, I believe, and this is just Jim here now, okay? I'm going to make that little statement like Paul does sometimes. This is Jim, not the Lord. But I think it is Moses and Elijah, and I have a lot of scriptural reason for why. 
Alright, look at what it says here in verse uh, 5. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. Alright, this is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. Now these men have power to shut up the sky so it will not rain during the time they're prophesying. They have power to turn the water into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, there are two major prophets in the Bible who, well, who is the one who dealt with plagues? Moses. Moses and river turning the Nile turning to blood. Who was the one that dealt with fire? The only prophet that ever dealt with fire was who? It was Elijah. Remember the fire coming down on Mount Carmel? And also remember in chapter 17 of 1 Kings, he said, until I say, it won't rain. And he shut up the heavens, if you will, for three years. And so that sure does look a lot like Moses and Elijah. Again, that's not, can't prove it there. But I think there's even a better proof to it in Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. It says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, uh, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Now, real quickly, that's going back to Malachi chapter 4, where it talks about how God said, Before that great day of the Lord comes, He's going to send His prophet Elijah. Alright? So He says, look at what He says. Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. Is he talking past or future? Future. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished, in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Now this is confusing unless you're willing to slow down here and let this sink in. John the Baptist was a fulfillment, a partial fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi. Put a bookmark here. Go to the last book of the Old Testament and I'll show you what I'm talking about. In Malachi chapter 4. Alright, Malachi chapter 4. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. 
But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in his wings, and you'll go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses and the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel? See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. So the last thing they heard, because remember then they had the 400 years of silence, there wasn't any prophets speaking or anything like that, but 400 years of silence, the last thing they heard was, I'm going to send the prophet Elijah before that great day of the Lord comes. John the Baptist comes on the scene, and if you do any study of his birth and the prophecy that was given to him by the angel Gabriel, he said to Zechariah when he was there in the temple, he said, you're to name him John, and he is going to go in the power and the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Now, please stick with me on this one because it's a little bit hard to grasp, but if the nation of Israel had listened to the message of, of John the Baptist, he would have been the fulfillment of Elijah, but Jesus and God, knowing all of time, knew that they were not going to respond. They had an opportunity, but they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And they even killed John the Baptist, the pre-runner, if you will, to Elijah. And so back here in Matthew, Jesus says two things. He says, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But he's also already come. And that's when they realized that he was talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. He was the fulfillment of that prophecy in, in part. But the fulfillment of it will be, the scripture says, and Jesus says, Elijah's still going to come and restore all things before that day of the Lord. So folks, I'll be honest with you. I think one of these two witnesses is going to be Elijah. Because what is their purpose? They're standing in Jerusalem, the holy city, clothed in sackcloth and preaching repentance to the nation of Israel that Jesus is the Messiah. The one you crucified is coming back. Oh, and by the way, very, very soon. And I'm sure they're going to be bringing to light all of these prophecies and all the stuff that the prophets have said. Remember back in chapter 10 when he says in verse 7, you know, when that trumpet sounds, all the stuff that I told my prophets is going to start to come to happen. The, these two people most likely Moses and Elijah are going to be standing there for three and a half years prophesying loudly, nonstop in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, get right with God. Now, people are going to get tired of it. And those that try to get rid of them, what's going to happen? Fire's going to come out of their mouth and destroy them. And they're going to call down plagues on, on the city and, and, and they'll stop the rain if they choose to. But then, at the end of the three and a half years the beast that comes up out of the abyss. And we'll see who he is in a week or so when we get to chapter 13 and the Antichrist being revealed. The Antichrist comes on the scene and he has them put to death. And God allows them to be killed. And their bodies lay in the streets for three and a half days. And everybody in the world celebrates. And they give each other gifts like it's Christmas. Because these two guys are finally shut up. And then after three and a half days, what happens? God brings them to life right in front of everybody. CNN's going to have it on film. And it's going to go right, they're going to go right up to heaven. And the moment they go up to heaven, there's going to be a massive earthquake in Jerusalem. And 7,000 people are going to be killed at that time. 
And they're going to, they're going to, it says here, they're going to praise the God of Israel. Now, the next question then comes. Again, we still don't know who the two witnesses are. I think scripturally they are Moses and Elijah, but please, it doesn't make a difference. All right? They're going to do a good job even if it's Joe and Schmo. All right? So they'll do fine because God's given them His power, so don't even worry about it. But the thing is this. When do they do this? I'm going to give you a little quiz here. I want you guys to wrestle with this for right now. I told you I want to, I want to teach you how to wrestle with the Scripture. Don't just sit back and say, just tell us the answer, Jim. Uh, just, personally, I'm not too excited about showing up at church where they tell me to fill in the blanks. You know, the preacher's got the sermon already mapped out and you just filled in the blank. I want to teach you how to wrestle with it. I don't want you to sit there saying, what's the word that goes here? Alright? So I'm going to give you three options. When is this three and a half year period that these guys prophesy? Is it the exact first half? From the beginning of the first half of the tribulation till the midpoint where the Antichrist steps into the temple? Is it the second half of the tribulation from the midpoint to the end? Or is it a span that might encompass a little bit of both? What do you think? And why? I believe it spans a little... Uh, no, I think it's between the fourth and fifth trumpet. All right, you think it's between the fourth and fifth trumpet? Go ahead. And I think that only, I mean, my only evidence right now Mm -hmm. is that here they describe that after these two witnesses were raised that uh, there was glory being given to God. That's right. But He's on to something here. But in the sixth trumpet, after that, they, they don't repent. Nobody repents. Did you catch that? By the way, that's, that's, that's real Bible study right there. You're using the text to interpret the passage. Folks, we can chuck the fact that it's in the last half. Can't be. You know why? What happens? Like he said, here the glorifying God. When it gets to the end, nobody does. Here's the next thing, though. Look at this. The, after this happens, that angel, you know, uh, it says, the second woe is past. The third is still to come. There's still time period left after they've been killed and they go back up. And here's another thing. For those of you that know what's going to be happening in the very, very end of the last of the seven year period, you think people are going to be buying gifts and passing them around during that time? There is no way. There'll be no shopping during that time. So it's definitely not the last half. It could be the whole first half. But most likely, it starts early in the first half, spanning into early into the second half. It doesn't really matter. It's going to happen. Alright? But that's good. That's real good. He saw that the fact that they were praising God, and that's not going to happen uh, at the very, very end. So it's not the second half, for sure. You can't start it at the midpoint. It could start at the beginning. Most likely starts not long after the beginning. Alright? Any questions about this before we move on? I must be doing a great job. No one's asking any questions. All right. <laughs> You're digesting. Very good. Good for you. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. His ministry was three. That's a good question. There are those out there will try to tell you that this number means this and this number means that. And we definitely know that six is the number of man and seven is the number of perfection and stuff. But there are people out there that try to give a meaning to every single number. 
And that's where you start getting dangerous because unless it's clearly said in the Scriptures, we don't know. So my, my answer to you would be, there are probably some people out there that come up with some stuff that makes some sense, but it, the Scripture doesn't really say. It doesn't really say. Go ahead. Yes? Exact same time period, but no, but but the trampling on the city and the prophesying for one thousand two hundred sixty days, I don't believe are the same time period. It's the same length of time. It's the same length of time, but it's not. But the same not time. the exact same time. You understand what I'm saying? Forty-two months is three and a half years. One thousand two hundred sixty days is three and a half years. Right. If they're all the same in that sense, but I don't believe they're the exact time period. I don't think they're the same time period. I think the forty-two months. Well, here's why. Remember, the Antichrist is going to come on the scene and he's going to sign a covenant with the nation of Israel. And they're going to think he's a good guy and they're going to be, they're going to be ones trampling the city of Jerusalem, not the Gentiles. But when he steps into the temple and declares himself to be God, Jesus warned the Jews in, the, in Matthew 24, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through Daniel the prophet. Now at this point, when Jesus said this, Antiochus Epiphanes had already done what he had done by offering pigs on the altar. So he couldn't have been talking about Antiochus Epiphanes because that had already occurred when Jesus said what he said in Matthew 24. He said, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, he said, get out of Jerusalem now. If you're up on the roof of your house, don't go to the inside of your house to get your coat. You're, it's going to get really, really bad. It's going to be tough for pregnant women, for nursing mothers. It's going to be bad. Pray that it doesn't happen during the winter time or on a Sabbath, he says. But the nation of Israel is told that they need to get out of Jerusalem at that point. Now here, later on we'll see when we get to chapter 12 that the nation of Israel is going to run out of the area of Jerusalem to a place in the desert that God's prepared for them and Satan's going to go after them, the Antichrist is going to go after them, but God's going to spare that group of believing Jews. The Gentiles are going to trample the city for the next three and a half years in Jerusalem. You understand? They're going to be the ones doing that. The first half, I don't believe that they'll be trampling it, if you will, uh, because the Jews will be in 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 what they think is a relative time of peace because the Antichrist has, has given them. But the, pro, the two witnesses will be preaching mainly to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. Okay, so these two things are actually Well, it could be if the two witnesses start at the very beginning of the, of the tribulation period. As we touched on, they could overlap. I think they overlap a little bit. I think they overlap a little bit. Good question. Yes, ma'am. No, this, this is what he said. He's just simply bringing out the fact that the response of the people when this happens is they glorify God. But he sees in the trumpets, there comes a point where it doesn't matter what God does, they still don't repent. He's just simply bringing out, trying to put it between those trumpets, don't get into that. He's just bringing out the difference of the response. You understand what I'm saying? Don't make it between the fourth and the fifth trumpet. You can't do that because there's not three and a half years between the fourth and fifth trumpet. You understand what I'm saying? Well, and all the trumpets on this little thing are after the Right, they're in the second half. But he, he's mainly talking about the fact of the response is to glorify God. And you don't have that. You don't have that once you start getting to a certain point of the trumpets, yes. Therefore, it's going to be in the first half or in the early part of the first half into the early part of the second half. Well, then what if well, again, 
You're trying to put them in a row, and you're not going to be able to do that in a lot of these places. All we know is this, is the first woe was, the second woe was, and there's still a third one to come. But we still got seven vials of God's wrath to be poured out. Every time we think we're done, it all of a sudden gets bigger and more and more. So uh, the main thing to grasp is this. These most likely, these two witnesses are prophesying in the first half for sure. Maybe the whole part, or maybe in the first half, slightly into the second half. Okay? Good question, though. Good question. Any other questions before we move on to chapter 11? Uh, the end of chapter 11. Alright, let's look at verses 15 through 19 in the last 10 minutes that we have here. I love this part here. Because actually, God showed me something tonight when I was going over the last of my notes that I had never seen before from this passage. So, if I hadn't seen it, none of y'all have seen it. So, alright, now. The se- <laughs> Thank you for laughing. Thank you for laughing. That was a joke. All right. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. All right. In, Je- in, in Revelation 11, verse 15, the seventh angel finally blows his trumpet. All right, we've, been, we've had a long break between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet in our chronology of the reading, but we don't know how much time period passes. You know, Don't worry about it. But there's something here in verse 15 that tonight just jumped off the page at me. It says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. Put a bookmark here and go with me back to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 8. This is where Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. Alright? First temptation was... Turn these stones into bread. And Jesus said, Scripture says, Man shall not eat by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the angel, uh, sorry, Satan takes him and tells him to hit the pinnacle of the temple, says, throw yourself down. And Satan quotes from Psalm 91, but he misquotes it uh, just to twist it for his purposes. And Jesus again says, don't put your Lord to the test. But in verse 8, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. It's already his. Yet, for a time, Satan had been given authority. Why? Remember back in our study of Genesis, we looked at the fact that Adam and Eve had been given dominion over the earth. God gave it to them. He gave them the ability to rule, but when they sinned, they subleased it to Satan. 
He became the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world for a time. Satan has some authority. It's still under God's control. But Satan says, you don't have to go to the cross to have all this stuff. You've given me some authority. I'll give it all to you right now if you'll worship me. But Jesus knew full well the moment he did that, he'd no longer become the qualified sacrifice. There would be no sacrifice for man and Satan would have won and he would have had it all for real. And Jesus said, no. I will wait. I'm going to wait until it's time. And then you get to Matthew, I'm sorry, not Matthew, Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. And when he blew his trumpet, there were loud voices in heaven that said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders, remember that's the church, who were seated on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshipped God. And they said, We give thanks to You, Lord, Lord God Almighty, the One who is and who was, because You have taken Your great power and begun to reign. Now, I want to show you something here. Again, put a bookmark back in Revelation 11. Go to Psalm 24. Listen to verse 1 and 2. It says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For He founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Everything is God's. Has always been, always will be. Now go to Matthew chapter 28. Most of you could probably quote Matthew 28. But I want you to uh, do Matthew 28 starting in verse 18. Jesus is with His disciples. This is after His resurrection from the dead. And in verse 18, said, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. At this point, when the seventh trumpet is being blown, we're nearing the end of that seven-year time period. We don't know where exactly in that time period in the end, but we're nearing the end. And at this point, the God who has had all authority, Jesus who has owned it all because He created it all, and He has been waiting patiently until the day that He's coronated as King, And He has allowed Satan to do what Satan does with His permission throughout time. At this point, He is now saying, no more delay, enough, you're done, and He steps fully into control. And folks, doesn't that do something inside of you? Can't you wait until that day when He finally says, I'm not going to let Him do that stuff anymore. My purposes have been accomplished by using Him for whatever it was that I wanted to use through Him. I am now stepping into... I've had the power. You've taken your great power. And now you've begun to reign. And we're all going to sit back at that time and say, Hallelujah. Go ahead. Do what you need to do. Step into the throne. And at this point, it's going to be awesome. But it's going to be fearful. Because Satan's not going to willingly just hand it over. And it's going to be a fight. And you're going to read about the fight. And you're going to read how the fight is going to end up with blood being spilled almost 200 miles long, 10 miles wide, and 6 feet high. It's coming up. We'll get to it. 
But I want you to just kind of just deal with tonight as we wrap up. Everybody in heaven starts to say, now Jesus begins to reign over the kingdoms of His world. Oh, Satan said, oh, if you bow to me, I'll give it to you. Jesus said, uh-uh, it's already mine. And I'm going to wait until it's time. Because if I bow down to you, I will no longer be that sacrifice. I'll no longer be able to gather to me people who put their faith in me. And all the plan will fall to pieces. Folks, why is Satan against Israel so bad? You want to know why? It's a real simple answer. Because God has made a promise to the nation of Israel that He will finish in that land with those people and He'll set up His kingdom there and for a thousand years He's literally going to come back to the earth and reign over all the whole world and us with Him. If He, Satan, can go after Israel, maybe God won't be able to fulfill His purposes in Israel because there'll be no Israel. But he is so full of pride, he still thinks he's stronger. He still thinks he's able. It's not going to work. But that's why everybody's turning against Israel. Satan's behind it because if he can get rid of Israel, God can't fulfill his promise to Israel. Therefore, God has lied. And he's no longer qualified to be God. That's why everybody's against Israel. It has everything to do with God. Pray for Israel. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, as the Scripture says, but that's only going to come when Jesus Himself fully comes back on the earth. Oh, the Antichrist is going to come and give Him a false peace, but He'll be found out to be who He really is and who's empowering Him in time. But in time, God will fulfill, it, fulfill all the prophets, the things He said through the prophets. And I cannot wait until that day when I too get to celebrate when Jesus takes His great power and begins to reign. Oh, he's in control. He's still ruling and reigning in a sense. But he's allowing things to happen until the time of the very end. And it's coming quick. It's coming quick. Next week, or not next week, the next time we get together, which is the first week of December, we'll start dealing with chapter 12 and chapter 13. And we're going to go backwards a little bit in our time period as we took it chapter 12 and chapter 13. Because here, we're at the seventh trumpet and we're really, really near the end. But now we're going to see things that John sees about the woman and the dragon and the beast coming up out of the sea and the false prophet and all that stuff. We'll get into all that the next time we get together. But one thing hopefully will be a lot more clear for you is the fact that we did our study of Daniel and all of a sudden all those visions of the beasts and everything we saw are going to make so much more sense. Any questions before we wrap up here? Comments? Snide remarks? You were ready, weren't you, Esther? Let me pray for us. Father, again, thank You for this chance to be here. Thank You for the fact that this Word is alive. And Lord, we don't even understand probably half of what it is that is here. But we thank You for the fact that You're at this time opening our eyes to see these things. And Lord, You have a reason for why You want us to know things. And that's not for me to determine or anybody else to determine, but for You to show us why You're showing us these things. Lord, again, please, may we begin to really know what it means to feed on Your Word, not to, in obligation or duty, have our quiet time, but to just eat. Not just once, but throughout the day. Take a little nibble here, a little nibble there, and, and, and meditate on it, and chew on and digest Your Word. 
And I know, Lord, when we do that, as the Word shows us, it'll give us joy. It'll taste sweet in our mouths. And yes, there are going to be times that it's going to turn our stomach sour because we're going to know some things that the people around us and family members that we love and neighbors that we care about don't know. And, and there's going to be grief and there's going to be sorrow and lamenting. But Lord, at the same time, one day you're going to wipe every tear from our eyes. One day you're going to rule and reign. And one day you're going to take the great power that you have and you're going to be the one in charge fully with no more sin, no more sadness, no more of Satan. Until that day, Lord, may we by Your grace continue to worship You and wait a little longer until all these things that You already have seen, how they're going to play out, they finish. But thank You for the encouragement tonight that it's going to happen. In Your name we pray. Amen.